Good evening. Um, <laughs> I am Pastor Tim Westermeyer, Senior Pastor of St. Philip the Deacon, and on behalf of this wonderful congregation, it's my privilege to welcome you to what is now the 100th Faith and Life event. That, that is a big milestone. We're very proud of that. And so this is the conclusion of the 20th anniversary season. I was speaking to our speaker tonight about some of the past speakers we've been privileged to have. And um, boy, what a great ride it's been. And I'll tell you more about next year's season uh, at the end of tonight. Uh, let me ask, though, if I may, uh, is, is anyone here for the first time to a Faith and Life event? Wonderful, excellent, beautiful. Special welcome to all of you. We're grateful you came out. I know the weather is really nice today, so sorry about that, but thank you for coming out on a, a beautiful spring day. And by the way, I do want to make sure I welcome those of you joining us on, online as well. We're grateful for your presence. Um, so let me just remind you a little about the flow for these events. You'll hear from our speaker um, for 30 or 40 minutes. After he's done, and after, after I make a few words of thanks, you will have a chance to ask him questions, whether you are here in the sanctuary or online. Uh, if you're here, and I just am prepping you to be thinking of questions you might want to ask, I'd invite you to come forward to one of the mics on the front right or front left. Um, and if you're online and watching this on the Faith and Life site, there should be a box where you can uh, write a question and submit it, or you can also send questions by email to social at s spdlc.org, social at spdlc.org. So for 20 years now, we have been inviting wonderful speakers. All of them are Christian. Um, they are historians, scientists, uh, nonprofit executives, business leaders, bloggers, authors, journalists, and yes, a few theologians. Uh, and uh, tonight, we are delighted to have uh, someone who is renowned as one of the world's best-known preachers and speakers. He's a well-known author. Um, there's been, obviously, a few events over in England recently related to the Queen's death and the King's coronation. He had something to do with another royal event a few years ago. I don't know if that'll come up tonight or not. Um, I do always ask our speakers, though, uh, for something about themselves that's a little off the beaten trail. Um, I didn't give him a lot of advance warning about this, but one of the things he mentioned, um, and by the way, he is the uh, presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church. He has uh, a year and a half left in your tenure, right? So um, blessings as you complete that. A little applause for that, yeah. Anyway, one of the things he said uh, I might mention is that during a sabbatical a number of years ago, he studied the violin, and so in his retirement, one of his uh, dreams and goals is to audition for an orchestra. I will let him explain what this orchestra is called Toots. <laughs> we are delighted to have you here. Will you help join me in welcoming Bishop Michael Curry? Can you hear? Oh, there we are. We're in good shape. <laughs> thank you, Pastor Tim, and, and, and thank you for this, this invitation um, and, and for your patience and forbearance. Um, I low these many years um, through the pandemic and, 
as the hymn says, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come, but grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will bring us home. And so it really is a joy to, to be with you in person, to be um, with your bishop and, um, and with, with all of you. Um, and, and I have to admit, there's a, um, for, for those online, I was with you a year ago, I think it was a year ago, online, and I can only see little bits of you, so I was looking into a camera and a computer screen. It's just so nice to see all of you all. <laughs> it really is. And I have to admit, there's a part of me that, um, that has grown in an appreciation of God's wisdom. You say, well, that's good for a preacher, but yeah, but, but particularly around Christmas. And uh, because the, the pandemic was when we were all, you know, in lockdown for our health and well-being. I'm not criticizing that, but that time of lockdown, um, I remember being on a television sh uh, show with, um, with, with a rabbi, and um, during one of the breaks, when we, we can talk while the commercial was going on, he said, you know, I even miss the people I can't stand. <laughs> and, and so I'm well aware that there was great wisdom when God, if you will, sort of had been trying to get his message across over the centuries, um, sort of online, if you will, through prophets and priests and kings and tried to get the message through them and finally uh, decided, doggone it, I'm just gonna come down there myself and carry the message. And God's wisdom is true. There's nothing like being in person. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> I, do, I do what Pastor Tim mentioned that I, um, oh, probably about 10 now, 15 years ago now, I decided I wanted to take up violin. You know, when you're in high school, you know, and you're a freshman, you know, you want to be a jock, so violin, like, went way in the back. So, so I got a sabbatical. Diocese gave me a sabbatical for three months, and I decided I was going to start taking violin lessons. And so I did, and um, had a teacher who's now in her mid-90s, um, had been teaching at, at Meredith College, a liberal arts school for women in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we live. And um, so I would go and take lessons, and she would um, um, she, she teaches, she taught college level, but she also did Suzuki for little children. And every once in a while, we would have what I called a child Suzuki moment. And, and she would say, that was very nice. And our bow took a very lovely journey, didn't it? <laughs> and, and I knew, well, she told me about the toots. Um, which is a, a voluntary organization of adults who've taken up musical instruments in adulthood, which means it's an orchestra that is like no good. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what it means. And the, the TOOTS is an acronym. Um, we live in Raleigh, and the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill is kind of almost one metropolitan area, in fact. Uh, but it's, it's sometimes called the triad. And the TOOTS stands for the terrible orchestra of the triads. And so... <laughs> So in my retirement, I plan to be, sit first chair um, in the terrible orchestra of the triads. <laughs> Again, thank you for this, and thank you for this series for 20 years, Faith and Life, which if faith is not about life, then God missed the point at Christmas. Faith is about life the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us full of grace and truth. 
praying that every once in a while we might behold his glory. And so I thank you for the witness of this. 20 years, and thank you for being here tonight. Our subject is hope, holding on to hope. But I want to back into it. Because there's an interesting verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 13 where, you know, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, and you get this, this incredible poetry. I mean, it's just spirit-inspired poetry. And then at the end, Paul says, now faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is, is love. They go together, faith, hope, and love. But at the end of the day, for Paul, the author of Romans, to make this claim is stunning. Because at the end of the day, faith and hope and life itself depends on love. Used to be an old hymn. I remember hearing it as a kid. I don't I think the Episcopalians took it out of the Episcopal hymn, though. I don't, I don't think it's in the, anyway, it's not there anymore, but it used to, it was one that went, oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depth might richer, fuller be. That love gave us life in the first place. That love called this world into being in the first place. That love can show us the path of life. That love can show us a life that not even death with all of its power can take away from us. That, that love is the basis of hope, even when evidence is contrary to that hope. Oh, love that will not let me go. Or as Paul said in Romans, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, not things present, not things to come, not height, not depth, not anything else shall be able to separate us. Did y'all hear that? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew. Now, none of that was directly germane to the sermon or the message that I'm going to give this evening. I mean, it's actually related, but it's background. <laughs> but I do want to talk about love as the foundation for hope, for faith, for life that makes life livable against the odds. Let me give you a, a text. And again, this is, this is not a sermon, I know that. But if it was, this would be the text. <laughs> but it's not, but I'll give you the text just so that you... <laughs> this is at the, from the Last Supper in John's Gospel, uh, which is chronicled in chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John. Um, basically, all that's the Last Supper. And um, near the climax, the final climax is the great prayer that Jesus prays, that his followers will be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. But as he approaches that, he comes to a conclusion of what he's saying directly to the disciples. 
And this is what he says according to the King James Version, which of course is the, the way Jesus said it the first time. Uh, that's my, what my grandma said, and grandma, she knew him a lot better than I do, so I, I <laughs> And so this is found in the 16th chapter, um, kind of toward the end of the supper before Jesus prays. He says, the hour is coming, indeed it has already come, when you will be scattered, each of, to, each of you to your own home, and you will leave me alone. But I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. And I've said this to you, and these things to you, so that you might have peace. Because in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. I know where I am. You have suffered much in this community. You have endured much from killings and violence. Talking with your bishop before this about she together with the Episcopal bishop and other religious leaders standing together to hold a community together in the midst of unmitigated want and violence. Oh, we, we a nation saw that horrible death of George Floyd. In the midst of a pandemic in this world, you will have tribulation. And even now as we stand here and, and speak Violence is writ throughout the land. And this is not a Democrat or Republican statement. You will not know my political party. <laughs> this is a human statement. We can't go on like this. Not safe in churches and synagogues and mosques. Not safe in malls and movie theaters, at baseball and basketball games. We cannot go on like that in this world. You will have tribulation, and I don't need to go, I'm not going to get into politics, this isn't about that, but we're in the midst of a nation, we're about to have another election, God help us. <laughs> All right? Yeah, here we go, right? And in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. This is not about giddiness, this is not about fake smiles, be of good cheer, deep good cheer. Something that comes from here. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's a saying that I, it's variously attributed to Prime Minister Disraeli. It's also attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. I didn't hear it from either one of those. <laughs> I did hear it at a concert in the 1960s. I was in high school from Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and, and he said it this way, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will know peace. He's right. 
He was right. He was right. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And if he has overcome it, then we shall overcome. That, that text comes, as I said, toward the end of sort of a, a final discourse that Jesus gives. And chapters 13 through um, 16, roughly, um, represent that discourse, sort of the final, Jesus's final teachings. Um, um, the late Professor Raymond Brown in his commentary on John's gospel um, says that what John has done is he's taken the teachings of Jesus, um, you know, articulated at the Last Supper and, and elsewhere as well. And what he's done is he's crafted them um, in the fashion of the last will and testament of a great teacher, of, of a wise one, of, of someone who's worth listening to. And it's Jesus at the Last Supper knowing Judas has already slithered out of the room. Jesus knows what he's up to. That wasn't anything mystical. That was political. He knew what Judas was up to. Jesus wasn't a fool. He'd been around. Judas had left. And Peter and the rest of them would soon abandon him, save for Mary Magdalene. Thank God for the sisters. Thank God for them. And, and I have to tell you, and, and, and I, I, this, is, this is actually quite serious. You know, I mean, I'm a male, you know, I'm, I'm one of the guys, but even on Easter morning, first of all, at the cross, um, it was just Mary Magdalene, Mary as mama, and the one male was the beloved disciple. That was kind of it. Um, and, and, but Mary Magdalene was there, and, and on that Easter morning, when he got up from the grave, thank God for the sisters, because we wouldn't even know what to do on Easter, because we wouldn't know he rose from the dead. The guys were asleep. It was the women who got up and went to the tomb. Thank God for the sisters. And, and so Jesus is giving his if you will, last will. He knows that death is at the door. He, he knows he has walked into a political, religious, and economic crucible. He knew what he was doing. This, this was the ultimate act of nonviolent obedience to a higher authority for a greater cause, greater than self. And at that supper, he told them what they need to know to make it through hard times. He told them what they needed to know to live in the best of times and the worst of times. He, he told them, he, he told them, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. He, he told them, there are many other things that I could tell you, but you cannot handle them now. I love that word. He really, in the South, he would have said, you know, there are many other things I could tell y'all, but you can't handle it right now. <laughs> he said, but when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit will lead you into all truth. He told them things that, that mattered. 
abide in me as I abide in you. But over and over again, at this one supper, over the course of a few hours, he talked about love. Chapter 13, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Moses had already given us 10. And he said, I give you a new commandment. Jesus knew Moses. He learned from Moses. What he was doing was, here's what Moses was getting at. That you love one another, love each other the same way that God loves you. And when y'all do that, you will have a different world. When you start loving each other the way God loves you, you'll have a different world. Oh, we'll have a different Minnesota. Oh, we'll have a different United States. We'll have a different Congress. Have mercy on me, Lord. And we will have a different world. Love one another as God has loved you. That's a game changer. He said that in chapter 13, early in the supper, just after he washes the feet of his disciples. And then he goes on and he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. At the same supper, he says, there is no greater love than this, but that one should give up his life for his friends. Over and over, he talks about love at this supper, and then he says, but don't worry, this is not a syrupy, sentimental love. This is a tough love, strong and durable, like that soap commercial used to say, stronger than dirt. This is the kind of love that will lift you up when the gravity of reality will try to pull you down. This is the kind of love that will set you free when everything in life will try to imprison you. This is a love that will not let me go. Because in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Love. Love. I grew up in Episcopalian, but my grandma was a dying wool rock rib Baptist. Grandma used to love that song. I don't know if y'all know it. It said, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the distant shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. And I can see him in grandma's church saying, the refrain would go, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else would help, love lifted me. When nothing else will help, love will lift you up. Love will set you free. Love will show you the path to hope against hope and to live against the tyranny of death. Love. Because when the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will know peace. Now, I know, I know someone here is thinking, all right, preacher, this sounds good in church. This is a tough world out there. And, and, and you know, the truth is, love is nice, and it's, it's, it's good in church. And it's good when you fall in love. But can you live a life based on love as a corporate exec? Can you live a life based on love as a politician? 
Can you live a life based on love when you got teenagers in your home? (laughs) You see see what I'm getting at? Can, Can you live a life based on love when you're a member of the Congress of the United States? Can a Democrat do it with a Republican? And a Republican with a Democrat? And are independent with anybody? They can go either way they want. Can you really live love in life? I wouldn't be here if I didn't think so. But I can tell you what I suspect is part of the problem. During the pandemic, um, like you, especially the early days, um, I found myself uh, not stuck at home, but but at home. I felt kind of hemmed in, basically. And again, this was for our good and well-being. I'm not criticizing or second-guessing the decisions. But, but, but I found myself, and I was trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do now? And, 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 I, and I remember, there were all sorts of things going on. I was trying to figure out, well, how do we do church? And then it was, we were meeting with the bishops on Zoom, and everybody was trying to figure out, well, what do we do? Um, and Episcopalians, if it's not in the prayer book or in the canons, we don't know how to do it. And, and there was nothing in either the prayer book or the canons about, well, how do you shut down a whole church? Um, you know, how do you do that? And we're in, is there canonical provision for doing this? And, you know, what do we do? And then we realized Easter was, Holy Week was coming, and Easter was coming, and, and all of that. And we were trying to figure out, well, how do you do church? Well, you know, and I, mean, I have to admit that, um, you know, I, I, mean, I love the Episcopal Church, I love Episcopalians, but we're not really on the cutting edge of technology. <laughs> um, and, and, and so we didn't quite know how we were going to, like, how you going to do church? Um, you know, there were a few congregations that had been online for years and doing that, but not most of our churches. And eventually, you know, people kind of figured it out. And, and I don't know about in the ELCA, but I suspect it was very similar. I've talked to Liz Eaton about it, and she's told me it's very similar. And, 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 and I remember first, you know, my wife and I would be home, and we, I said, well, we're going to go to church on Sunday morning. So we would like fish around, and I'd play with the computer to get us, you know, so we could see. And. And, and sometimes you would get, you know, a morning prayer service at a church, and they clearly had their iPhone. Somebody had the iPhone all set up, and um, you could see something because the iPhone was kind of sitting like this. And, and all you could see was like the ceiling, and you could hear this disembodied voice saying something and saying the prayers, and it sounded familiar. Well, about a month later, they figured out, oh, you're supposed to have the phone on the person who's actually doing the talking. I remember we, Marianne Buddy, the Bishop of Washington, said, look, this is like the first Sunday when it was clear we were in a pandemic. She said, look, the church needs to hear you from the cathedrals. I said, Marianne, I can't get to Washington to, to, to preach at the National Cathedral. She said, no, the cathedral shut down, but we can broadcast it. We can um, do it online. I said, well, okay, but I'm trying to figure out how to do this. So it was just my wife and I, the two of us, you know, and the, the daughters and the grandkids were in their home, homes. It was just the two of us and the cat. And... <laughs> And, and Sharon, you know, I said, well, I need you to be the camera person right now. And she said, you know, I got a union for this. <laughs> and, and so I gave her, you know, the iPhone and, and had it on. I said, just take me. And we had to look around the house to find some place where we could film. And we finally found a corner in the dining room that looked like it would kind of work. So I was in the corner preaching from the National Cathedral of the Episcopal Church on the Sunday as the pandemic was raging. Sharon's holding the iPhone. I had forgotten that that cat loves my wife. 
and follows her everywhere. And when she doesn't give the cat the attention, the cat starts meowing. Here I am preaching from the National Cathedral with a cat going meow, meow, meow. So, I took great comfort in the words of Jesus. There are many other things I can tell you, but you can't handle them now. <laughs> but the Spirit will lead you. And the Spirit did. And yet, I had to adopt a new rhythm because I, Zoom was killing me. I mean, it was helping in one respect, but it was just, I was on it. I didn't realize you got to pace yourself. You got to let the brain rest. And, and finally, I you know, created a kind of a schedule, uh, kind of thinking of the monastic way of prayer and all that, kind of a way of doing a schedule for it, and decided that part of what I would do is, is um, you know, break completely at 12, 12.30, go downstairs, because we had taken one of our daughters off at rooms and I made it an office, go downstairs, get something to eat, lunch, sit down, watch TV with my wife Sharon, whatever she's watching. And I didn't realize that at 12.30 every day, she's retired teaching now, so she's home, 12.30 every day, she watches television. And I said, oh, is this religious programming, dear? <laughs> she said, well, you might think of it that way, but I said, what's the name of it? So one's called The Bold and the Beautiful. And, and the other is the young and the restless. And then Judge Judy comes on after all of that. And, and so I finally got in the habit of sitting down with her and watching the bold and the beautiful and the young and the restless. And after a while, you start identifying with the characters in the story. And I became curious about who was doing what to whom and who was in trouble and who was in, who was out, and all the characters in it. And and then at one point, I don't remember when it was, but at some point, somebody said something about love in one of them. And then I started, my ears kind of perked up, and I heard the word love on Bold and the Beautiful, the Young and the Restless, and once in a while on Judge Judy. <laughs> and when I was listening to this, I said, no wonder sometimes people turn us off when they hear us talking about love they sometimes think we talk about what's on those soap operas. And, and while there may be a tangential relationship to, to that, the truth of the matter is, when the Bible says God so loved the world, it wasn't saying God loved the world the way they love on the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> it was talking about a different kind of love, a kind of love that is unselfish, the kind of love that is even sacrificial, the kind of love that will give up the self for the good and well-being of others as well as blessing the self. The kind of love as of a first responder who saves somebody they don't even know. The kind of love of a soldier who stands his post. The kind of love of a nurse who walks until he or she is exhausted and tired. The kind of love of a spouse who takes care of another spouse who because of dementia doesn't even know kind of love that stands up and speaks up when others would sit down in silence. The kind of love that stands up wherever bigotry, wherever hatred, 
for any, ever any animosity or mistreatment of any child of God, the kind of love that led Jesus to go to a cross, not for what he could get out of it, but for what he could do for others. God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't take. He gave his only begotten son. That kind of love can lift up and liberate. That kind of love can help and heal. That kind of love. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world will have no peace. Then children will not go to bed hungry. Then every man, woman, and child, no matter who they are, will sit under their own vine and fig tree. Then we will learn to lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside and study war. save the world. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I was, um, as, as Pastor Tim mentioned a few years ago, I, I attended a wedding Not far from here, but it was across the pond. <laughs> and um, in the wedding, I quoted, um, in the sermon, I quoted an old spiritual. A spiritual that I rediscovered, to be honest, um, when I was actually had had, had surgery, and um, this is years ago now, had had surgery. Um, I'm a colon cat, cancer survivor, and had had sur surgery for colon cancer and was home recuperating. And I had a book deadline. I was supposed to finish this book. Well, I finished it. I've never written anything quite that fast. I don't know if it was the medication or what. I felt like the <laughs> prophet Ezekiel. I mean, revelations were just coming out left and right. And uh, so I gave the doctors royalty for their assistance in writing this book. But the title of, it, of the book was Songs My Grandma Sang. And, and one of the songs that I remember her singing, my grandmother, as I said, she was died of rock Rock Baptist from East Carolina, eastern part of North Carolina, and, and uh, she, she would sing, you know, while cooking or whatever it was she was doing, and, you know, was a remarkable woman in and of herself, and, and um, remarkable because she, I mean, she did domestic work most of her, her life and sent her kids, one of whom was my mother, got them through college. Um, I was always proud of her two sons, um, who, who both of whom fought in World War II, and, um, you know, and lived. Um, uh, she lost a son um, um, in the Pacific Theater, actually, lost, a, and it was in the Navy. Um, and she was proud of them. But life for her, she buried children in childbirth and, and eventually would bury my mother when we were kids and came to help my daddy raise two kids. This was a tough sister, Mary Magdalene type sister. She would have been at the empty tomb. Grandma used to sing, and one of the songs she would sing all the time was, was the one, you know, there is a balm in Gilead, 
make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And she would sometimes sing them or hum them or just kind of quote them, I mean, a variety of ways. And, and so when I was at the wedding, um, I mean, I, I quoted uh, this hymn. And I did so in part because of the words, but also in part because of the singers who created the words and the context in which they lived. These were enslaved people who had been taken from their home, separated from families, who had lost virtually everything except the air they breathed. They had brought to, to this land in an exile, like the Hebrew people by the waters of Babylon. We sat down and wept when we remembered the Ozion. Upon the lyres, we hung up our harps for our captives, required of us a song saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? These were people bereft of all worldly hope. And they sang, sometimes they sang, they sang, sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Can you hear them? They've left us a legacy of how you live through hopeless times. And then in one of their other verses, they said, if you cannot preach like Peter and you cannot pray like Paul, you just tell the love of Jesus how he died to save us all. What a stunning remark. Save us all, those of us who are enslaved and those of us who have enslaved us. Do you hear that? He died to save us all, all God's children. There's the bomb at Gilead. That kind of love that could heal the sin-sick soul. Well, I quoted that at the, at the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And I checked in with the Archbishop of Canterbury to make sure that people would know it. He said, well, people who go to church here know it. And I said, well, I hear a whole lot of folk don't go to church here. So I, 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 that's my other question. He said, don't worry about it. They'll know it. And so I quoted it. And and I was quoting it, there is a bomb in Gilead, and I was restraining myself because I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to. I said, Americans are used to this, you know, it's kind of in the American spirit, but I, I realized where I was, and, and they asked me if I would just stay behind the little lectern and not move. I almost killed myself because there was one time I wanted to step out and I had, get back, Lord, get back, get back, Lord. And, and so finally, when I got to the, to the hymn, I said, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. 
It is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. I had forgotten the teachings of George Bernard Shaw, who said the British and the American people are two people separated by a common language. I had forgotten <laughs> that what I meant, they might hear a different way. And when I said there is a bomb in Gilead, there was a security guard off to my right. That brother put his hand over his heart. I don't think he was going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. He was fishing around to be ready in case I went on. I, and so I quickly pivoted and said, a healing bomb, a bomb that can make you well, a loving bomb. And the truth is, the healing bomb of love is the bomb, the salve, that can heal us all, can heal our deepest divisions when we dare to live in love that helps us face hard truths, to learn from them, and then to turn together to build a new society, a new world, a healing bomb that can teach us how to do what is just, what is kind, what is compassionate, a healing bomb that can help us see in each other the very image, imago dei, of God. And when that happens, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, then the world, then our soul will know peace. God love you. God bless you. And may God hold us all in those almighty hands of love. Amen. be back up in a minute to answer some questions. May I join the bishop in wishing you a Merry Christmas. Uh, wow, it is good to be together. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to let him rest his voice for a second. I've got a few announcements I want to make. And again, after I'm done with this, we'll invite him back up to do a little Q&A. So if you have questions here in the sanctuary, again, come to one of the mics if you're at home. Uh, again, social at spdlc.org is the email you can send questions to or on the uh, box on the website. Um, let me begin. Uh, this is the end of the 20th season. We are hard at work on planning next year's season, so let me begin by plugging the first uh, event of the 21st season. Uh, and if you would like updates about our events, you can sign up for our emails. You can go to our social media. We're happy to communicate that way. Um, if you want to join our mailing list, we'll send a mailing out in the summer with all this information. But I'm delighted to announce tonight that on October 26th, we, did anyone watch the coronation by any chance? Okay, the king is not coming, by the way. 
Um, some of you also no doubt saw the Queen's funeral. Um, I'm delighted that a gentleman named Canon Mark Birch, whose title is the presenter of Westminster Abbey, will be joining us. So he's the person responsible for the worship life of Westminster Abbey. Uh, and if you saw the King's Speech, I'm, I'm trying, this is random, but did anyone see the King's Speech, the movie? If you watch that to the end, I'm quite sure I'm right about this. Lionel Ho Logue, the, the gentleman who helped King George VI, received something called, uh, he became a member of the Royal Victorian Order, which is for service to the crown. This guy, Mark Birch, after the funeral of the queen, received that same honor. So he will be here to talk, among other things, about the coronation. And I hope you can join us for that. I, I'm a huge Anglophile. Uh, I'm super excited about it. I hope you will be as well. Again, October 26th, it'll be here in the sanctuary, as always, free and open to the public. Um, so mark that. Oh, I forgot to bring your book up. The, the Bishop's book is available for purchase, by the way, from our friends at Subtext Bookstore. Uh, Sarah's out there. If you didn't pick one up on your way in, you can pick one up on your way out, and he will sign them following um, the Q&A also. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. We do have some special guests here tonight I want to uh, thank for coming uh, from the Bishop's Office, Sharon Jones and Bishop Mikey are here, so welcome to both of you. And I will want to say a special thank you to Sharon. I've been working with Sharon now for two years, uh, both on last year's uh, event with Bishop Curry, and again, to make this one happen. Sharon, you have made that really helpful and easy, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Will you welcome them, please? And from our own Minneapolis area center, we have the bishop, uh, Bishop Ann Svenningson, and from the bishop, bishop, bishop's office, Bob Holteen. So welcome to both of you. Join, them, or join me in welcoming them. Um, and then I want to just say again a, a strong word of thanks uh, for everyone who makes these events possible. Uh, 20, probably one years ago when I was planning the very first event, this is a true story. What I, what I had was the slate of speakers that were booked. I did not have a dime to pay for a single one of them. <laughs> and after we promoted the, the series, uh, the money came, and it has continued to come to allow us to do these events. Now, again, for 20 years, we've been in the black every single year. And I want to be very clear that this is not a budget item of this congregation. It's supported entirely through the generosity of area corporations and individuals. Um, so you see, I hope everyone who has supported it in the, in the program tonight, if I might just uh, thank especially our corporate sponsors, Crossroads Financial Group, Cressa, Ulrich Real Estate Group, Mali Design, Agio, Productivity Inc., Rapid Packaging, and Mastercraft Labels. And then you see all of the names here. Um, I just can't thank you enough, each and every one of you who support this series financially, for making this possible for so long and for allowing us to bring incredible speakers like Michael Curry. Will you join me in thanking our sponsors? <laughs> and then a final word of thanks. Uh, many of you have heard me thank him uh, for, well, since the start of the series, Jeff Elstad whose music you actually were listening to through the speakers tonight, was supposed to be with us. He got called away at about 4 o'clock. I got a call. One of his family members was being rushed to the hospital. I hope they're going to be OK. He couldn't make it, obviously, but I asked if it would be OK if I announced that. So please keep Jeff, who's a dear friend of the this, of this series, uh, in your prayers. And we pray for his family member that she will heal quickly. 
All right, so again, thank you uh, for letting me pause for a moment, and we're gonna go now to the Q&A. If your voice is fully rested, I hope it is. Um, and again, if you have a question, the first one's always the hardest, please come to one of the mics, and I'll see if there are some online questions as well. Well, I'd like to say thank you so much for coming. Oh. I have looked forward to this all my life. <laughs> oh, and I know that can't be true. Oh. But I, um, I, I, since you were speaking about the royal family, I was wondering if you were aware, and I, I'm aware of it because I went to a little church called the Church of the Good Samaritan in Sauk Center, Minnesota, where um, it's the home of Sinclair Lewis. A little of Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair Lewis. Uh -huh. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you were aware that there was a picture of the Queen on the left-hand side, inside the um, church itself, looking down upon us, and it was there until Bishop Anderson of Minnesota gave um, an order to take them down. And I just thought it was kind of interesting. You were talking about the love and the, and et cetera, um, the royal family and what was going on in the coronation. Um, I just thought you'd like to know about that. Oh, I didn't know it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Anyway, I'm very grateful you're here. And I hope to um, be in correspondence someday and about some things I'd like to do for the church. Okay. So oh, take care. You. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, God bless you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> ditto. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm an Anglophile also. And I wondered if you saw the look on the Queen's face when you were preaching because I did, and I'm, I'm not sure she was there with you. Well, I'll tell you a, a story. One of the things about, um, well, for the queen herself and the senior royals, um, they're not allowed to be ex expressive. And, and, and I do understand part of that reason, reasoning that if they're expressive in a church service, for example, that can be read a whole lot of ways and interpreted. I mean, think about all the comments that anything they do gets interpreted and commented and gets in legitimate newspapers and in the tabloids. And I mean, they, and so as a result, you'll notice that in many of those, in church services at least, the senior royals would just sit there and they'll basically stare and they don't laugh, they don't, there's nothing, emo and that's, that's just the way they have to live. And so some of that stone face, in all honesty, they have to do that. Now I will tell you something that was not caught on camera. I was sitting, um, well, I say I was sitting where Pastor Tim was, and, and after, you know, they're saying God save the queen and all of that, um, and I think the couple had gone out first, I think. And so the cameras and everything was on the couple leaving. 
The queen then left, and she came from where she was sitting, and say I was sitting where Pastor Tim is, and walked by me, and she stopped. The camera never picked it up. She looked at me, she smiled, and she nodded. That wasn't caught on camera. And let me tell you something, I almost wet myself. I mean, it was like, it was all my life. It was terrible. <laughs> I almost was ready to apologize for the Revolutionary War. I'm so sorry, we didn't mean that. I mean, it was <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, thank you for not standing behind the lectern tonight. <laughs> uh, this book is wonderful. I read it a year ago. I recommend it to everyone who's here. And I have a question for you about the appendix. <laughs> In it, you suggest that we should all write our own rule of life. <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit from you about your rule of life. Oh, wow. Sure, thank you for that. Yeah, and the, at the end of the book, there's um, just some suggestions um, for a possible rule of life. And what that, that the idea of a rule of life really comes from, um, well, it comes out of the monastic traditions where um, religious communities throughout history have had what's called a rule of life. Um, which was basically sort of commitments they make to order their spiritual life. Um, you know, with prayer, um, reading, study of scripture, um, um, works of hospitality, good works, and, and on and on. And sort of a commitment to, to do that for a period of time or for a life. Um, it's, a, it's a way of practically making your vows um, to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Say, what does, that, what does my baptism look like in life? And here's what I'm willing to commit to do. Now, religious communities do that for a lifetime. Um, I mean, we, you know, we're baptized for life too, but um, sometimes a rule of life can be for a period of time um, and be revisited and updated, but it's what you're doing to order, and I'm using the word order um, in the same sense that the Hebrew word in Psalm, order my steps in your word, um, to give order and regularity and coherence um, to my spiritual life. Anyway, so that's what's suggested at the end of the book, that if each person kind of does that and you kind of evaluate it, update it, you know, if you have a spiritual director or a soul friend, somebody, a pastor, somebody you can talk with about updating that, you know, every year, every six months, however you do that, it's fine. But it's actually taking your in, inner life seriously so that your outward life, journey inward so that the journey outward has some coherence and as best we can lives by grace and represents the love of God in Jesus Christ for real. Mine is not complicated. I mean, I, 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 the pandemic threw me for a loop um, um, in terms of my annual retreat. Um, when I was in the diocese, I would do retreat twice a year in the fall and, well, in the late fall and in the spring um, and would go to, in North Carolina, um, there's a community of sisters in Durham, outside of Durham, Roman Catholic sisters, and I would go there um, for three or four days. Um, and trust me, for somebody like me, a silent retreat is torture initially. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought the Geneva Convention outlawed that, but, uh, uh, but after a while, you do begin to hear the sounds of silence. I mean, they're, they're um, you know, it, it is kind of like the prophet Elijah, the, 
the earthquake, wind, and fire, the still small voice. And so I've picked that up a little bit since the pandemic. My daily uh, rule is that I read both the morning and evening offices, um, and sometimes the evening becomes late night prayer. Because um, like right now, I'd be reading it, depending on, so sometimes late night prayer. And then I've taken, I finally realized the rhythm of my life, I realized this years ago. I'm an early morning person. Um, I wake up at five o'clock, even if the alarm clock does it. And well, when I'm here in central time, I'm up at four o'clock. But, but I just sort of, that's my time, my body rhythm. That's how I function. Late night, I, I begin to peter out. And so that becomes my prayer time. Uh, my big prayer, extended prayer time, when I can just pray and I'll, you know, I'll use the forms that are in the prayer book, uh, but I keep a prayer, a list of folk uh, on my cell phone in the little note section. Um, when somebody asks me to pray for somebody, I type it in there, and every once in a while I forget to do that, and then I, I do my, oh God, I messed up again. Um, I can't remember who it was, and somebody talked to me, but you know all things, so I'm happy. <laughs> And so, but I do that, so I go through my, my prayer list. Um, I, you know, keep the House of Bishops. I, I don't think I've ever actually told them this, but I go through the House of Bishops, the bishops and their spouses and their families. I don't go through the whole list every day, but um, I work my way through it over a period of time. And so I do, that's prayer time. Um, and then I adopt a, a book of the Bible that I just want to study and go slowly through. Um, just kind of go slowly through. I, I made a decision at the beginning this summer. Every several years, um, I haven't done this, gosh, it's been a long time, but it's been a while since uh, when I was Bishop of North Carolina, got the diocese to, to read the Bible in a year. Um, and, and so we did. And so I decided um, on my last journey to retirement um, that, or not last journey, I haven't done it before. It makes it sound like I've had multiple journeys. Um, <laughs> on, on this journey to retirement, that what I'm with the book I'm going to read is to read the Bible over the course of those months to retirement. And to, to do it where you do one chapter in the Hebrew scriptures and one in the New Testament, that actually works out roughly. You have to sometimes double up, but it works out roughly. And, it, and it's, it's an experience in and of itself um, there are parts of, um, you know, Leviticus that can get a little, <laughs> you just have to keep working. I know the Holy Spirit's in here somewhere. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to find you. But what I've learned is just the rhythm of, of doing it. Um, that, that sometimes, whether I'm consciously aware of what impact it's having or not, there's something about dwelling in the word and letting the word dwell in you that, and sometimes you wrestle with it, like Jacob with the, wrestling with the angel, and you just keep wrestling with it till you get the blessing. And like Jacob, you may walk away limping, because you walk away differently. And I know that to be true. And so that's, that, that's all, all part of it. And then I do little different things. And um, Easter I haven't done, I've not been as good about doing something particular in terms of my rule of life, during the Easter season. Lent is just much easier to do. I mean, I got a lot of sins to repent of, so it's like really easy to focus on. Um, but that's sort of the general. And then I make a confession to a confessor once a year and do that. I had a spirit, I've had three spiritual directors as bishop. <clears throat> All three of them have died. And <laughs> they actually have. 
And I, I sort of wondered, was it me? Because I was feeling unburdened. <laughs> but, but I've kept that. It's, it's helpful to be able to say, okay, this is where I screwed up the last year. And this is Michael. And uh, to be able to just kind of fess up. And um, there's something good about that. Finding a soul, trusted soul friend, um, spiritual person that you can share with. Thank you for asking that. Bishop Curry, thank you again for your time tonight. Nice to be with you. You joked in your comments about uh, the, the English and the Americans being two people separated by one language. I think there's a sense growing in the U.S. and your connections to Washington that, that separation is happening even more and more profoundly amongst our own peoples. Yes. If you're talking about hope tonight, from your angle, where do you see hope? Where do you find hope? How do you think about hope through the lens of the church and the community and, and maybe coming back to Washington. Where do we cross? How do we separate that division? There are signs and seeds, but it, the path ahead of us is not clear. I mean, there's no need in my kidding anybody. Now, I, I think we will make it through. But none of us knows for sure. But I remember an old preacher when I was a young, I was a young pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina back in the 1970s. Dr. David Hedgley was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And Dr. Hedgley, when, I don't know, things were rough and tumbled, would say it's always important to remember we've been this way many times before. This is not the first time this country has been deeply divided, and it won't be the last. And we must garner, I believe that we can garner the same spiritual resources, which begin with a radical commitment to love each other, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's, that's ecumenical, that's interfaith, that's for theists and non-theists alike. That's for Republicans, independents, and Democrats. I've said this on Capitol Hill. I've said it in prayer. We have morning prayer services, and we've gone and we invite members of Congress to come, and a lot of them do come. But you'd be surprised, more than you'd imagine, on both sides of the aisle, or all sides of the spectrum. I have hope that what I call the great center of this country, the sensible center, will rise up, will rise up and claim the center as the place where we can all stand. It is not the center that's the problem. It, it, it is extremes that are pulling the rest of us because the center gets silenced by loud extremes on right and left. And that, that's really a reality. And my hope, and, and again, I haven't figured out what I'm gonna do in retirement, I'm not running for office or anything like that, but, but, but I wanna be able to participate in helping to empower the sensible center to claim the deep core of humane values that we share together and the deep religious values that we share and getting us to live out of that center 
And I think if we do that, we will find a way to navigate our differences. And if we don't, we will find a way through it somehow. God has not given up on us, and we dare not give up on ourselves. One thing we cannot do is quit and give up on democratic values and on what we say in the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's, that's America. So I'm not gonna quit, we're gonna keep on. We're gonna keep on. Um, I got grandchildren. <laughs> Let's go to that. We do have a lot of people online, but evidently they don't have any questions. So thank you for coming. Oh, okay, they're listening. <laughs> oh yeah, they're listening, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. I represent part of the Episcopalian contingency here, and oh. I'm very proud of our bishop. You're amazing, thank you. Oh, oh thank you. Um, not in Minnesota, but in, in the Eskimos have many, many words for snow. Not quite in Minnesota, but in Eskimos. But in, in reading the Bible or in studying the Greek, we know there was several different, there were specific words for different kinds of love. <clears throat> and one assumes that those were actually maybe in the vernacular of, of the common language. What would, what do you, what do you, two parts of it, what do you think happened that made it so that the common language no, uh, brushed over it and pulled them all together? And because you say on the young and the restless, that's one kind of love. Right. And philos is another kind of love, right. or agape is another kind of love. Right. What, can, what words can we use to help the secular world realize or hear this message mm -hmm. uh, to differentiate the different kinds of love? I wish there, as with the Eskimos, I wish we had different words, wor different words for different kinds of love to be, clarity is important. That's great, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right, part of it, is English. We, we don't have, uh, we don't tend to have multiple words, um, nor do we have masculine, feminine, and neutral, neuter. Uh, we don't have that, it's, so, we, so it narrows down the, the possibilities there. So English, some of that's the limitation, I just think of the English language. Now, it, it can be beautiful too, you get it in the hands of a Shakespeare or Langston Hughes and you got some beauty, but there are limitations implicit in the language. I do think, and you're right, I'm eros, philia, um, and, and agape are um, in the Greek. Um, and in the Hebrew, there's some nuance. Um, so when you get Song of Songs, I've forgotten my Hebrew now, but, but when they talk about love is stronger than death, it's, it's in the Hebrew, it's not comparable to agape. It's actual romantic love um, that it's speaking of. We just don't have that facility in English. What I have tended to do, and I sort of did it today, but when I've been in more public space on media kinds of things, 
I talk about unselfish, sacrificial love. And that's been my way of getting, kind of detaching the word love itself from the bold and beautiful, young and restless and all that, kind of giving it some context. But I've had it, and then there are times when I've, I've said to folk, look, what does love look like in politics? Well, go back to the prophet Michael. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? That's what love looks like in the political sphere. I told members of Congress, what does love look like do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Don't pass any legislation you wouldn't want members of your own family to have to deal with and live with and impose it on somebody else. This is not rocket science. This is just, you know what I mean? That kind of, and so that's translating love. But for good or ill, I found that I had to, Oh, the Ricola. Um, I'm eating a Ricola to keep my voice going. Um, I found that I've had to add to the word love, um, you know, unselfish, sacrificial, I mean, that kind of thing. Um, if, if we were in a diff using a different language, it would be easy. Great question, thank you. And I think we're gonna call last question here. Um, if that's okay, after he responds to this brilliantly, Please don't applaud wildly, okay? Can you wait till I come up and give him a gift, and then you can oh. applaud wildly, all right? Let's <laughs> say, hold the thunderous applause, right? right. If you know. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for being here. I did see your um, presentation five years ago. That was wonderful. And um, as for politicians doing unto others as they would do to themselves, isn't it Amendment 26? That, Tell me what Amendment 26 is. I think it's, I mean, it's, um, you write in online to try to get it ratified, but it's the amendment where the politicians cannot pass any law unless it actually does affect them. Oh. Like they can't have insider oh, stock I, trading. Anyway, um, yeah. my question is, if you're a beginning violinist, are you kind to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I've taught, I've taught many an adult uh, flutist, and they're just so bound up in, oh my goodness, I'm not James Galway, I'm not everybody else. And it's like, okay, chill, chill. We're all learning. We're all taking little baby steps. We're all learning how to love each other and ourselves. So. Oh, you're a wonderful you. teacher. This is. <laughs> <laughs> now I can tell you, I'm very chilled. Um, <laughs> In fact, so chill that, that this is true. When I first started taking the violin, we had another cat, this is years ago, and who was a bit overweight, but, but if you ate like he ate, you'd be overweight too. But anyway, anyway, this cat um, needed to, the vet told us he needs to lose weight. And um, you know, I'd go in and practice my scales, which really, the violin is a lovely instrument in the right hand. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, scales on a new violinist are just torture for everybody else around the house. And, and so the cat would sunbathe himself in the, um, in the dining room, in the window, and the right time of day would sunbathe himself. And when he would hear me practicing the scales, he would like waddle out of the room. <laughs> and by the end of this sabbatical with me doing it, all I had to do was walk in the dining room <laughs> and just touch the violin case. And like Pavlov's dog, that cat would run out of the room. <laughs> so I helped the cat lose some weight. So there was some good <laughs> I, I do want to thank you again. You, you really are wonderful. And, and I want to thank you also um, for the relationship between 
uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the Episcopal Church. It has been one of the greatest blessings. I mean, I can say as an Episcopalian, you are one of the greatest blessings um, to us, and I pray we to you. Um, the relationship between us, I can't tell you how many times um, it happens in our office um, in New York, and I know it happens in your church-wide office in Chicago, um, because Presiding Bishop Eaton has told me, where there'll be something that somebody wants the presiding bishop to sign, um, and I'll kind of, you know, staff will vet it, and I'll look at it and say, check with the Lutherans, is Liz signing on? <laughs> I said, if I'm going down, Liz is going down with me. I mean, look at her. God love you, bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. oh. <laughs> I told you not to do that. <laughs> you can do it in a second. Um, again, thank you all for coming out. Thanks to those of you who joined us online. And again, Bishop, we are just so, it was great to have you here last year virtually. It's way better to have you in person. We're so glad you took some time. We have a little gift for you to thank you for your time with us. It says, with thanks to Michael Curry for bringing faith to life. And we are so, so grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow.